Have you ever been in a class, particularly I'm thinking a college class where where it's a, a two-semester class, or, or maybe you're in a class that has a prerequisite, and you get to this class and you realize whoever taught you the first step did so poorly. And you get to the second step and they presume that you have a foundation of knowledge that you simply don't have. They're using words that you don't know. They're using ideas you've never thought of. Your foundation was lacking. And that's what we're looking at today. We are looking at the spiritual gifts that are in the spiritual gifts. We are looking at the gift of teaching, what that is. We're looking at the gift of prophecy, what that is, and how they build on and point back to the foundation that is Jesus. Because if they don't, if we ever stop pointing back to the foundation that is Jesus, we fail. Uh, Not just a little bit, but we crash and burn like we wouldn't believe. In order to In order to get what these are, we're going to have to understand by definition what they are because our goal is not just to define a thing, but to define it and recognize how it functions. So let's read out of Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 6 through 8. And in case you're wondering, yes, this is recorded in the first service, and the second service might get a video, not a live person. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving to the one who teaches in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, to the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, prophecy, and teaching. What are they? In order to to understand how they function and point us to the foundation that is Jesus, if we don't understand what they are, We're going to miss the point. Prophecy. We've talked about this before. Prophecy has two components. One is the foretelling of the future. One is the foretelling of truth. In all of Scripture, the foretelling of truth is 95% of what a prophet does. Only at specific points in time and for particular purposes has the foretelling of truth or or foretelling of events been a a regular, consistent role in the prophet. So not to get any further into it than that, as a church, we function in looking at this in the foretelling of truth mode. That is the way we're going to look at it. We could have discussions on what the foretelling component of it could be or is, but we're looking at it in terms of 
what it means to foretell truth. There's another word for that, and we're going to come to it. And that word for that is frequently admonishment. So when we see this idea of admonishing one another, that is taking truth and applying it specifically to a person's life in regards to error. Exhortation is applying truth to somebody's life in regard to encouragement. This is regarding error, to correct. That's what prophecy is. What what about teaching? Teaching is, well, it's teaching. It's an easy word. Everybody knows what it is, except we really don't. Teaching is not somebody standing in front of a classroom giving information. That can be teaching, but teaching is broader than that. Teaching is actually instructing people to know or be something. In a classroom setting, it's usually to know something. In a closer setting, it's to be something. You teach your children to honor Jesus. That's not you standing up in front of the living room giving a lecture to two people sitting on the couch, though sometimes they need a lecture. It's frequently sitting with your child and teaching them what it means to love Jesus. You're you're teaching. So, So teaching is not just this passing of information. It's actually the passing of character. And scripturally, that's really what we're looking at. And there's a word for that. The word for the passing on of character from one person to another is what? Discipleship. So we are creating disciples in our teaching. That's what our teaching is designed for. And if we use our prophecy so as to admonish one another, if we use our teaching as to build one another, then everything we're doing is pointing back to and building on the foundation that is Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Actually, before we even get to this, let's uh, just take a moment to remind ourselves that there's two components of gifts. One is natural and one is supernatural or spiritual. Your natural gifting is given to you by God and you should expect to use it to honor Jesus. Your supernatural gifts are given to you by the Holy Spirit and you should expect them expect to use them for the honoring of Jesus. So what's the difference? The difference is that one is given to you as a Christian following Jesus, and the other is given to you as a person who is alive. Your natural gifts are given to people. Supernatural gifts are given when we become believers, and the Holy Spirit seals our hearts. The way you can tell the difference between the two is a natural gift gets you the results that it should. A supernatural gift gets you more results than it should. Your ability level does not match the outcome Natural gifts, your ability level matches the outcome. And we can talk more about that at a different point in time. And actually, we'll spend some time on that in the, in the, the growth group class on spiritual gifts. That'll be a, a component to everything that we're talking about as we try to discern what our spiritual gifts are. But that's the, the general breakdown. Now, let's go to 
Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, we already said the admonishing component of this really is utilizing the gift, though you don't have to have the gift of prophecy, but it's utilizing the prophetic idea. Again, you do not have to have a gift in order to do a thing. You don't have to have the gift of prophecy in order to admonish one another. You don't have to have the gift of exhortation in order to encourage one another. You don't have to have the gift of evangelism to share the gospel. It just is that those people who have those gifts will see, typically, greater results than the people who don't have those gifts. That's okay. Because our job is not to measure ourselves based on results, but based on obedience to doing what God has called us to do. And when he has given us an opportunity to encourage, to admonish, to share the gospel, to teach, we do those things. And we leave the results to him. Because as soon as we put the results on us, thinking that we have to be the ones to create the result, we will fail. And, and even even insofar as using the gift that he's given us and feeling like the use of that gift will create a result, we will fail. Because our job is not result. Our job is obedience. So again, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. What are we supposed to teach and admonish with? All what? All wisdom. What does that mean? Wisdom is not the great knowledge of a topic. Wisdom is really the taking of that knowledge of a topic and applying it to life. So as we teach, we teach with the ability or the idea, the impetus of helping life look like the teaching. As we admonish, we admonish with the goal of admonishing one another toward Christ, toward reconciliation. Now, admonishing, again, is the, the prophecy gift, or if you've got the gift of prophecy, you're going to be admonishing, is another way to say it. And, and that person, along with the teacher, but these two particularly can be very, what's the right word for it? Mean. They can be jerks because they say in their brain, I see the truth of a topic, you're stupid. That might not be the words that they use. That's the impression that they give. I know more than you do. This is my gift. You're dumb for not doing it my way. That's not the goal. The goal of admonishing is not to belittle somebody else, berate somebody else, or show them that you're better than them. 
Uh, we're gonna look at the, the most extreme example of admonishment that I can find in the New Testament. And admonishment comes to, and this is important, we do not admonish the world. That is not our job. We admonish one another because we expect those in the household of faith to live like those in the household of faith. We expect those outside the household of faith to live like those outside the household of faith. In fact, in this uh, passage out of 1 Corinthians 5, we see Paul saying, or we, we hear Paul say, I told you to not be with the sexually immoral people, but I didn't mean the sexually immoral of the world because then you'd have to not be on earth. I meant the sexually immoral in the church. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, you've got a guy <clears throat> who is living sexually immoral, but openly, and everybody knows it, and they are applauding it. So, so know that that's where it is. This isn't just somebody made a mistake, did something they knew was wrong, and now are repentant and trying to change. This is somebody who did something that they knew is not what the Bible says, but they say, oh, I've got grace from Jesus, and it's okay, we're free to do whatever it is that we want. Paul writes this. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, verse 4. Verse five, you are to, you, the body of people, are to deliver this man to Satan. And that is admonishment. Except it doesn't even end the verse. But if we're not careful, that's the mindset we have. Admonishment is to hand this one over to Satan. But, but why? You are to hand this one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what's the goal of admonishment? The goal of admonishment is not to tell somebody else how they're wrong. The goal of admonishment is to say, the only way I know how to help you get to the truth, to get to living like Jesus, is to face consequences for what you've done. So this guy, living openly sexually immoral, is handed over to Satan, kicked out of the church, not allowed to be part of this body until 2 Corinthians, when he's reinstituted. He's reconciled because his heart changed and they then got the result that Paul said they should be looking for. Not the result of punishment, the result of reconciliation. That's true parents to children, bosses to employees, husbands to wives, it's everywhere. We admonish only for the goal of reconciliation. Wherever there's any brokenness in a relationship, we admonish so as to fix that, not so as to show our superiority, our authority. We admonish for reconciliation. So if you have the gift of prophecy, if you can see truth in topics easily and you can apply those truths to life, do it only in such a way as to build one another up, not tear one another down. Back to Colossians. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. And whatever you do, including admonishing, including teaching, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We have a tendency to shift our minds at that moment and say, oh, whatever we do, this is when I'm playing golf or eating or sleeping or watching TV, which is all true. But contextually, it's, it's specifically, I almost said specifically, it's specifically about teaching and admonishing. So what does teaching mean in this case? To understand teaching, we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore... So this is, this is the Great Commission. We're all familiar with that. It's not a surprise. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, because he has authority, go and make disciples of all nations. How? This is important. Making disciples or make disciples is the command. And then the descriptors of how you make disciples. How do we make disciples? We baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We baptize them in the name of Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. Not just one, but all of them in unity. Okay? And we teach them to obey. Obey what? To observe all that I have commanded. We teach or disciple. We baptize by discipling. Uh, that's not a, an image of baptism. It's actual baptism. We are Baptists for a reason. Not to say that everyone else does it wrong, but our best understanding of this passage says, and other passages, says that believers get baptized as an act of discipleship. Not as an act of salvation, not as an act of promise, as an act of discipleship. So he baptized believers. It's called credo baptism. And we teach them to obey. Uh, there's the teaching. That's not informational, though it is. It needs information in order to teach. But the teaching is not informational. So if you're a teacher, your goal isn't to just give information to people. We're not all algebra teachers. We're all we're trying to get them to do is the content, I'm smiling because he's making faces at me. We're not just trying to give them information to answer questions for content. We're, we are trying to take information and give people a basis by which decisions can be made. We function more in the sense of somebody becoming a doctor than we function in the sense of just information transfer. Doctors go to medical school. Did you know that? Do you know what they do in medical school? They learn all sorts of information that is not relevant to them. And I mean that. And then they take this giant foundation of information and then they build the application of it on top of that. I remember hearing my dad, I asked my dad a random question about uh, why I could blow air out of my eye, which I can do. And he goes into this explanation of what things are connected to what things. And he's like, oh, goodness, I haven't thought about that in 40 years. I didn't even know I still knew that. And that was the foundation of information that he had. 
So he had all of these classes on stuff that he didn't think was relevant to him. And it wasn't relevant to his profession, but it was relevant to his foundation. And then that application was built on the foundation. So we can't go and say, oh, you don't need to know anything. That's asinine. And if you don't know what that is, go learn. Come on, that's a joke. Asinine means silly to the point of stupidity. Because if we say we can follow Jesus without knowing anything about him, that's ridiculous. If we say we can know everything about Jesus and not follow him, that's inane, which means asinine, which means silly to the point of stupidity. We can't do either one. We have to function in such a way that we build a foundation of information, a foundation of knowledge so that we can build on it. Our teachers build information not for the purpose of information, but for the purpose of building character in people. There's a, there's a trap there. Our desire is to see people grow. Ephesians chapter four, verses 22 to 24. Uh, as we disciple, we desire to see growth. That is our desire, Okay. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. As the elders put together our division for Bethel, we saw growth being a necessary component of that, and this is the passage that is our definition of growth. Growth is not anything other than actively putting off your old self and putting on your new self, which is Christ. That's growth. That doesn't mean that it's all done. It means that it's a process ongoing. A, a different way to think about it would be this. A disciple, we've been talking about discipleship. A disciple is someone who depends on the Holy Spirit to turn them into someone who loves God with their whole being. That's a disciple. A disciple isn't someone who's reached that end. There's someone who depends on the Holy Spirit to take them to that end. That's what we're seeing here out of this passage is that we've got people, believers, putting off continually and putting on continually. That's what we're to do. We're to put off our old self. We're to put on our new self so that we can then take that knowledge that we have 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, and we can give it to somebody else. And we can help somebody else know and be who God has made us to be, what God has allowed us to know. He says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's us. Paul to Timothy to someone, to someone, to someone, to someone to my grandpa, to my dad, to me, to my children, maybe to their children. That's the path. It doesn't have to just be bloodline. It could be teaching people in the Lord, other people you've discipled and helped know Jesus, who go to others and help them know Jesus. But that's what we're doing, and we're passing this on generation to generation. Now, back again to Colossians chapter 3. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What is the word of Christ? I have my favorite translation and least favorite kind of Bible in front of me. And the reason it's my least favorite kind of Bible, can you see what's on this page? 
What color? Red. That is silly. Uh, well, it's not silly. Those are the words of Jesus, right? So we should know what it is that Jesus said, and it should be made red so that it's more important and, and catches our attention more. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, and you, you will see why this type of Bible drives me crazy. Considering this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, that's salvation, that's the cross, right? The Old Testament pointing to Jesus. Prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So who was inspiring them to write what they wrote? Jesus. Who was it that said the words written in red? Jesus. Who was it that said the words written in black? Jesus. So if we're going to have a red letter Bible, we should just have all red letters. Now, I do understand the value of being able to see what are the quotes from Jesus. I understand that. It wasn't like it's such a big deal that I couldn't purchase a Bible that had that. But if we're not careful, we value the red letters out of the Bible more than the black letters out of the Bible. But the Spirit of Christ inspired both of them. So when it says to let the Spirit of Christ dwell in you richly, he is specifically saying, know this. Because this can't dwell in you richly if you don't spend time reading it and knowing it, engaging with it, understanding it. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 to 11, there's two things that need to happen in order to let the Spirit of Christ dwell in you richly. You need to be in it. Acts 17, 10 and 11, which is about the Bereans and the the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they were engaging the scriptures to see if the, there was truth in Paul. They were reading it and evaluating him by it. The only way you can do that is if you're reading it. But there's a second thing that needs to happen. There are, there are many people who read all of the Bible and don't believe any of it. They're not changed by it. What's the difference? If we are to be people who are dwelling richly or who are having the Spirit of Christ dwell in us richly, we must not only read the words of Scripture, we must Submit ourselves to the word of Scripture. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Romans 12, 1 and 2, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, by the changing of your mind's thoughts process. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what it is. If we're going to teach and admonish, we do so so as to bring about the rich dwelling of the Spirit of Christ in us, dwelling on his word, being in it and being transformed by it. So what, though, is the foundation? If that's the main point, what is this foundation that all of this is built upon? Colossians chapter 1 
verses 15 to 18, just before what we've been reading. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything, he is the foundation. He is the center. He is the impetus. He is the most valued and most valuable. And if we're going to use the gift of teaching, if we're going to use the gift of prophecy, then we must be doing it with Christ as the center. See, we have a problem. And this is, I alluded to it earlier, we have a potential error. Those of us or those of you who are gifted in teaching, those of us or those of you who are, have the gift of prophecy will have a tendency to dethrone Jesus. And think in your mind that your use of your gifts affects the outcome. You are the change agent. But you are not. This is a gift, Romans 12, 6, that was given to you by grace, a thing that you did not deserve. All of the gifts are that way, but these two we're talking about. And if you didn't deserve that gift, you didn't work for it, it was just given to you so that God could work through you, then it's not you affecting the change. You're a conduit through which God affects change. But you are not the change agent. Our tendency is to overvalue who we are. Second Peter 3.18 tells us this, and then we're going to jump back to John 15. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in the understanding that you don't, underst you don't deserve and grow in your understanding of knowing him. Now back to John chapter 15, verses four and five. Abide in me. This is Jesus speaking. I know that because it's red letters. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Well, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing or accomplish nothing, affect nothing, change nothing. So if you're a teacher or a prophet, if you have that gift and you start to put yourself at the centerpiece, realize you are not that good. God may use you to affect change in people, but he's affecting change through you, not you affecting change for him. And as soon as we start to think that we need to be the ones to make it all happen, we will fail. Use your gift. If you're a teacher, teach. And use the recognition of the grace given to you in your teaching. If you're a prophet, use your faith. Be faithful. 
and admonish one another. Now, we don't say all of that about God not needing us, about we, us being a conduit to say that, that those things are not important. He gave us these gifts for importance, for purpose, for value. 1 Timothy 5.17 says this, that those who are elders and teachers among you are worthy of something. Let's read it. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, we could spend a long time talking about what's meant here because pastors aren't supposed to talk about those verses because those verses are particularly about paying somebody for what they do and pastors aren't supposed to talk about that. It's not spiritual, which is kind of silly. But we're not talking about money right now. We're simply saying, though apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We are not the change agents. We don't affect the change. He says those who labor in those roles. This is about elders, but, but you could take the concept broader than that, are worthy of honor. Elders, double honor. Because they're pouring themselves into the growth of people so long as they're focused on Jesus as the preeminent one, so long as the foundation is Christ, not us, then we're free to use the gift of teaching. We're free to use the gift of prophecy to admonish one another in such a way as to point back to Jesus all the time. If that is your spiritual gift, use it. And if it's not, Enjoy those who have it, as long as we're all focused on reconciliation and Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for allowing us to know and follow you. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in us as your children, that you would, that you would use those around us to teach us, that you would use those around us to admonish us, we thank you, Father, for your incredible love for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.